Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey guys, Sarah Larby here and welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Today we are going to be speaking to Ken Beacondam and Ken is also a full-time investor in Brantford, Ontario, where I currently have most of my properties. And Ken does a lot of basement conversions, buying bungalows, turning them into duplexes. And so we're going to definitely pick his brain and figure out how he grew to really a lot of properties. It's a family business and they definitely have a great thing going. So I'm excited to share that with you. And before we do get started, so my flip property in Brantford is like one week away, I think, from being listed. I had a couple things that slowed us down a little bit more. My awesome contractor, Mark, unfortunately, one of his employees quit on him. And so he was by himself for a few weeks, a couple weeks. And now we've got about one week left and uh, we found somebody to help him out. So I think that delayed the project maybe about a week, not a huge deal, but definitely things will happen when you're flipping a property and you're trying to do it within a fairly fast time frame. Just a few things to keep in mind. And I uh, just wanted to share with you just kind of our costs currently. So if you guys are looking at doing a flip, again, the house is not sold yet. Um, we are going to be listing it next week and hoping to get about 305, 310 for it. I, uh, also, guys, I'm like super excited. Um, appliances, I found these brand new appliances like a stainless steel fridge, a stainless steel dishwasher and stainless steel stove for $1,500 on Kijiji. So last time I ended up finding it for $1,800 when I was doing my burr and somehow I managed to get lucky again. So Kijiji was a huge help again this time. That saved us a bunch of money. So appliances was actually, it was $1,450 for those three. I still need to find a microwave range and then I should be done with the appliances. The flooring for the entire house cost us uh, $2,100 and kitchen cost us $87.95, literally, um, on the dot. That included the cabinets, that included quartz countertops, and I negotiated a bathroom vanity with the same cabinets and the countertop as well. So, and the sink um, comes with that. So I, th I think that's a pretty good deal considering there's quite a bit of cabinets. Utilities, obviously, as you're doing a flip, you're going to be paying the water, the gas, the electrical, so just factor it in. Not a huge amount of money, but so far we're about, let's call it $150 on that. Um, our insurance was probably one of those things that we didn't know was going to be so expensive, but it was $1,348 for three months, <laughs> which when you're doing a flip, it's a whole different type of insurance that you need, and it's actually quite expensive. So just factor that into your guys' numbers. Lawyer, corporation setup, that was about $1,250. Um, legal fees, closing costs, that cost us $5,800. The deposit was two grand actually for this Brantford flip. And then, so labor... So far for labor, I am, so week seven, we are in $8,000 for labor. And that was for one, two, sometimes three people. And products and materials so far, 6,000 bucks. I'm pretty sure we're done. Like we might have like another, I would say $1,000 max of materials left to buy. So overall, like with everything, like our materials, our labor, Closing costs, kitchen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have put down thirty-seven thousand dollars, so we probably have like a thousand and a half, give or take, left to pay. So we're probably going to be on budget, uh, which is about forty thousand all in materials, closing costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and we bought that for two twenty. So we are also. Um, using private money, and that is 10% annually. So we're only going to be using it for 
about three months or so. And uh, it's not going to be like a huge profit, but it's still going to be a small profit. And I think we're happy with it. I mean, it was one of those things like literally, I think we've went to the property three times. <laughs> so not a huge headache in the grand scheme of things. Mark does definitely make it really easy for us, hence why we're able to do flips because a lot of the time flips are time consuming. They are very hands-on. You can have lots of surprises. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, your budget can go through the roof. You can find problems that you didn't account for. It's definitely a little bit of a riskier type of investing when you're investing in real estate um, in comparison to buying and holding a cash flowing property as an example. But you know what? It's been fun. We've been recording some of the progress that we are hoping to put on YouTube shortly with Sarah and I and uh, to be part of that new brand. So I'm actually starting a new website with Sarah Edder, which is going to be called Your Millennial Lifestyle. And we're just going to have different strategies, different things for millennials. So that should be out in a couple months. But I am looking for another deal. They are really hard to find, guys. The money comes a lot easier <laughs> than the actual deals. And sometimes when you're new, you think that it's the opposite. But if you really find a good deal, the money will come. And you'll be able to figure something out because you'll have investors that would be interested in participating in something. But getting a deal that's low enough under market value that you're able to get the ARV high enough and make some profit is uh, definitely something that not everybody can do all the time. So, but you know what? It's been fun. And we are, our goal, I guess, is to do three or four year flips specifically. And I still like the buy and hold or the burr strategy. That's like still my favorite. The burr strategy is like the best of both worlds. If you want to be a landlord and you want to flip and you want to get the most amount of wealth and profit, do the burr. That burr strategy is by far the best way to create wealth and to hold on to it. Because with this flip, I'm going to have to sell it. And then I'm going to be paying taxes on it. And so my profits just get smaller and smaller and I don't have any cash flow. So if you guys really want to do the best thing, in my opinion, with real estate, buy a house, then renovate the house, rent out the house for cash flow. That's a big one. Just make sure that you cash flow. Refinance the house. And then oftentimes you can pull part or even if you're lucky and you've calculated the numbers really well, all of your down payment. And then you can reuse that again for the next property. So to me, that is the best thing possible. Again, just look at the pros and cons to each option. And sometimes, you know, a flip might be better. Sometimes you might want to do a burr. Just keep in mind if you're doing the burr, you're either going to need somebody to carry the mortgage for you or you're going to carry it yourself. And you only have a certain number of mortgages that you can carry with A lenders before you go to B lenders. So, you know, one of the reasons that I'm flipping with Sarah is a, we want to create fast exit strategies if we have to. And I also personally, I want to save the last two to three A lender deals that I can do for holding properties myself because I still can. So look at, at the reasons for each one. And if you're interested in burrs, guys, let me know and I can walk you through how to do that. But most of the properties that I've been able to buy... They don't necessarily need a whole lot of work, but if you buy them right and you buy them under market because you know the property and you've become the market expert, you'll be able to refinance them. Like some of them I've been able to do after 12 months, 13, 14 months, and I've put in maybe five to $10,000 in total, but just about buying right and sometimes being the first to offer or sometimes being able to be the last to offer because somebody is maybe more motivated to sell. So consider that and consider that as a method that you'd want to really focus on to create long-term wealth. And of course, like you guys are going to hear tons of different strategies, tons of different strategies that are going to make sense and where people are making money and doing really well in. 
but become an expert in one. And then when you're that, the expert in one, and then at that point in time, maybe expand to another strategy. But I would say start and learn and then learn some more and then do some more of that specific strategy, whatever it is. And then once you're comfortable with that, then you can expand. And once you expand, at least you're going to have a good base already versus, you know, if you're somebody that's starting with a buy and hold and then you want to do a rent to own and then you want to do a flip and then you want to do a multifamily, like it's just a lot of stuff. Just become really good at one. And once you're there at that point in time, you can expand your strategies. But anyways, that's just my little rant. And I love burrs. And if you guys ask me what my favorite one is, that that would be the best for me. And I think for a lot of people too. Anyways, so let's talk to Ken Beacondam. Ken does a lot of basement conversions, which is also really good. And it's also a type of burr strategy. He's essentially taking a house, he's renovating it, duplexing it, and then actually he's holding it and he's holding onto it. And they're managing it, they're, they're landlords, and they're doing a really, really good job. So definitely a really interesting conversation with Ken. Ken is also local, as I mentioned, in Brantford, definitely reachable. So if you guys want to reach out to him, reach out to him, ask him questions. And if you guys could take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, leave a review, or even just email me. And I've had some emails about some really cool ideas for my next podcast. And if you guys have any specific topics that you want to know about, let me know. I mean, I'm here to help you guys learn, help you guys be successful at real estate investing, because once you are successful at this type of strategy and this what I call side hustle for the beginning. Essentially, you can make it a full-time thing. You can change your life. And it is not about working until we're 65 years old. It is about figuring out the faster way to create your freedom. And real estate investing so far has been the best strategy that I can think of where the most amount of people have been successful in doing that. So without further ado, Let's get on and meet Ken Beacon Dam. Hi, Ken. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Great. I'm really excited to have you on. So do you want to share how and when you got started in real estate investing? Yeah. So I grew up in a real estate family, actually. My dad was investing in rental properties since his early 20s. So it's kind of always been around our family. We always had rental properties and different things going on. But, you know, like most kids, you don't always listen to your parents and you kind of do your own thing. And it's not really until I became of age that, you know, I started buying my own properties and then kind of really seeing the, uh, the life-changing impact it had on our finances. So that's basically um, kind of the background a bit. That's how uh, I kind of just grew up with it and it's kind of been around. But, you know, when I finished university, you know, my dad encouraged me to go out and buy, buy a property. We went out and I looked at, Know, a few different places, and you know, I settled on a little condo, a little condo in Brantford. It was it was eighty five thousand dollars, and uh, this was back in two thousand ten. That was my first foray into real estate, kind of on my own. And actually, at that time, because I was a first time home buyer, I just had to put five percent down. So five percent of eighty five thousand is only like forty two hundred dollars. And I actually, only had like three thousand dollars in my bank account. So. I actually had to, uh, to do a cash advance on my visa card just to kind of come up with the, uh, the full down payment. Um, but, uh, but anyways, I got the deal done and I was able to close on the property. I was actually, I actually started one semester left to finish. So I couldn't even like go in and do a fresh paint job myself. We had to uh, bring in a, a painter to, uh, to paint the unit for me. That's but, awesome. Yeah, we got it rented and yeah, it's been great. So just out of curiosity, where was this first property? It wasn't Brantford. It was in Brantford off of Gray Street. Okay. My favorite town for investing. Yeah, mine too. Yep. Did you know that Brantford was voted the number one best city to invest in out of all of Canada for this year? No, I know. It's crazy because, you know, we've been saying for a long time, like, you know, Brantford's uh, a great place to invest. You know, we've slowly been seeing it, you know, jump the charts. And it's not until this year and last year that, you know, really people from out of town started recognizing that France has been a great place. And, uh, but we've, you know, we've gone to this for 20 years. Our France has always been kind of undervalued. So it's awesome to see that for sure. That's awesome. So 
I recently did an episode with Laurel. I'm not sure if you've listened to it, but she was going through finding your why and looking above and beyond just real estate investing and trying to figure out why everybody wants to invest. Like what's the bigger picture? And so I wanted to ask you, why are you personally buying investment properties and why real estate? What's the story behind it? Yeah, so for so for my wife and I, we kind of are coming to this with a bit of a different perspective on life. Actually, my wife has cystic fibrosis. And so, you know, her life expectancy is not as long as, you know, your average person. So, you know, I think life expectancy right now in Canada is 47 or 50 years old. Wow. So that kind of changes someone's perspective on life. And really, you know, you know we're planning for today, you know, and uh, you know, we have a two and a half year old son. And um, I didn't want to spend my days and weeks and years basically, you know, working for somebody else, commuting to and from work and spending all my time kind of away from home when, you know, I need to be at home. And as the years are progressing, her health is slowly getting, you know, worse and worse. And so it's really important for me to be available, you know, to care for our son and to care for her moving forward. So that's what's really driving us in our real estate, you know, growing our real estate portfolio. Because, yeah, like I need to be around. Like the only way to do that is to be kind of financially stable, financially free. Um, the only way I see that happening is through you know, real estate investing. And so that's kind of what's really been driving us. But I think it's really important, you know, for, for anybody, you know, getting into real estate investing, you have to have a big why, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's not all about the money. Like, it's about why you're doing it. You know, the, the greater things that real estate can bring you. And the biggest thing that it can bring you is time, freedom of time. And um, yeah, so anyway, that's our why, you know, that's why we're doing it. That's very true. I am a big believer as well in just creating that time freedom. And, you know, even though I love real estate investing and it's changed my life and yes, I love the houses and I love everything about it. It's not about real estate investing. It's about creating that time freedom. So you definitely have a very great story and I hope, you know, you have many, many years of health ahead of you guys. So Ken, you mentioned that you are investing and that your family invests as well. Can you walk us through just what your portfolio consists of and just a little bit about the type of investing that you're doing? Absolutely. So we invest kind of as a family unit. So basically my dad, my brothers, and myself. And so currently we own and manage about 46 units. And that's, you know, that's single family, condo, unit rentals. There's duplex, triplex. We have a fourplex. We also have an 11-plex uh, building. So all in all, it's about 22 different properties. And my dad also owns a self-storage uh, facility in Brantford as well. And my, my brother Mike uh, runs that and uh, also owns a uh, portable container storage business. Um, so that's all branded under uh, the moving box. And then, yeah, that's all based out of Brantford, but they service the whole GTA. So our family is very much you know, an entrepreneurial family, a very real estate-minded family each have our own roles and, and ownership in the various parts of the business. Uh, my role is really kind of on the real estate side. And that's where my focus is on, is on, on the, you know, continuing to build the, uh, the real estate portfolio. One of the biggest things that we're kind of focusing our attention on now is basically just kind of, you know, going through our entire portfolio and finding out, you know, where we can intensify and create more density within our portfolio. So a lot of that is, you know, adding more suite to the uh, the property. So whether that's our existing properties or, you know, new properties that we're purchasing, we're creating more suites and doing a lot of, you know, secondary suites. And, you know, especially doing them legally. So making sure that uh, everything is being done properly, you know, with the cities and, uh, and what have you. So I think as an investor, you know, if you're not really going to your, you know, going over your existing portfolio and trying to find ways to intensify and create more density, I think you're really missing out on a lucrative opportunity. You know, there's so many of us have space within our existing properties that could easily be converted into a unit or just restructuring the unit, you know, for instance, like a single family and putting in a basement apartment. You know, you can double the amount of rent you have coming in and you're creating more affordable housing for people, right? Which I think is also important. Yeah. So I do want to take a step back and let's just assume that, you know, you're talking to some new investors and they've got maybe one or two properties and maybe they want to create some additional income. Like what are some of the steps? Let's try to break it down a little bit so that, you know, we understand really like A to Z what you guys are doing to create that additional income. Can you share with us? 
Yeah, I guess I'll start on, say, a new purchase, you know, because trying to convert existing stuff, you know, has its own challenges with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we're going out and purchasing new properties, you know, we have a very clear criteria of what we're actually looking for to do these legal second suites. So I call it the triple B strategy, uh, brick bungalows with basements. You know, notice I didn't say triple D. This is a triple B strategy. So very safe, secure, you know, easy to handle, not too much. So that's what we look for, these 1970s, 1980s era brick bungalows, either side door entrance or a rear door entrance with a full basement in it. So that's what the housing type that we look at. And then obviously when we're looking at that, we're also looking at the zoning for the property. So making sure it's zoned in the right zone that permits, you know, accessory units, uh, secondary suites, uh, key units, uh, conversion, whatever the, the city is classifying it as. But we make sure we're in the right zoning for it. So how would somebody find the zoning information? Where do they look? Um, well, you can call the city and they can tell you, like, if you call the building department, you know, they can put you through the zoning and, uh, you know, you can talk with the zoning administrator and they can kind of tell you over the phone. I use the GIS map software on uh, online. So basically, I just go to the city's website, find their mapping software, then I type in the uh, the address for the property and then it will pull up the, the different zone. Once I know what the zone is, let's say it's R2 zone, R1B, whatever the end. Then I open up the uh, the city bylaw and I go through and I look for what's permitted, what's permitted to use underneath that zoning. So it's the easiest way for a beginner would be just to call the city and find out what the zoning is and ask, is a legal second unit permitted at this property? And they'll tell you yes or no. So do you know, like off the top of your head, some of the letters that you mentioned, like which ones could allow for something like that? It, it varies from city to city. You know, a lot of cities now have been uh, mandated by the province to allow secondary units. So a lot of your residential zones will permit it. But cities also have control over to, you know, where they allow and not allow these secondary units. So although the province has allowed it, the city still has control over where they don't allow them. But in most cases, most residential zones will permit it, um, especially urban residential zones, so zones within the city boundary. You know, if you live out in the country or a county, you know, they may not permit it just because it's not within the urban boundary. So your R zones, your R2, R3, R1B, there's different zones, you know, depending on the city. But yeah, not every zone permits it. So it is important to make sure it's in the right zone. Just out of curiosity, how difficult would it be to change a zone? Well, you have to go for a zoning change, which now goes in front of uh, council, especially if it's not part of the official plan of the city. I mean, you have to go for official plan amendment, you know, get the official plan change, get the zoning change. It's like there's a lot of steps involved. Ultimately, like when we're purchasing property, if it's not already zoned, it's not worth our while to go back and try and change the zoning for a secondary unit because usually it involves an official plan amendment. And, you know, that's not what we're know about to get into with the city with that so it's not really um not for one unit you know if you're working on a um, multi-res and you're trying to get you know two three four five units or something um like for instance right now we're working on a um, converting one of our it's a legal complex and we're trying to convert it to a legal 12 plex which is going to require a zoning change because it's only zoned for a 10 plex so but to us, it's worth it because you can get two more units. And then when we go, once we get the units converted and done and renovated, when we go to refinance the property, it'll be worth that much more. So it's worth the effort, um, but it's not always not always worth it. Okay, thanks for sharing that. So now let's just say we've got a house that meets the zoning. What are some of the things then to look for or to do next? So usually when I go visit the property, I'm taking my tape measure with me. And the reason being is, you know, when I show up, you know, when I first uh, approach the property, I'm measuring the driveway width and making sure, you know, one, can we get two cars side by side? Because for a secondary suite, you need at least one parking spot per unit. So most case, most cities, you're going to need, you know, two parking spaces side by side. And so, you know, usually we're, we're looking at at least lot widths of 40 feet because in most cities, you can't have more than 50% of the lot or 50% of the front yard, uh, a driveway. You have to leave 50% like landscaped area. So I always make sure that, you know, we can fit in two cars side by side. So I'm always measuring the driveway. You know, most driveways were coming in, we think they're like 16 feet, you know, maybe 14 feet. And we're knowing that, okay, well, we'll probably have to bump this driveway out like four feet in order to get our two cars 
And so I'm not really going to a property unless it's 40 feet wide because it's just not worth it. You have a minor variance for parking and, and all this kind of stuff, which is possible, but it just it's more steps involved with that. And once we go inside the property, you know, we're heading right down to the basement usually because that's where most of our work is taking place. That's where we can see most of the infrastructure of the house. So I'm throwing my tape measure up and I'm measuring the ceiling height, you know, from the concrete floor to the underside of the joist lower joists and kind of seeing what we have for clear heights because you know to get a uh, you know most cities aren't going to allow you a minor variance for ceiling height that's one thing that they're quite particular on is ceiling height so you know if we don't have our, our clear heights then you know i move on to the next property because it's not uh, like if i'm looking at doing it legally you know and our strategy right now is doing everything legally and there's like there's a lot of different reasons we're going illegal, and that's another uh, question, possibly. But, but yeah, that's basically what we look for parking, make sure the right width, uh, we have clear ceiling heights, and making sure we're in the right building. Everything else is essentially following the building code, you know, which is easier said than done, but you know, those items are very much achievable. So, are ceiling heights different by city depending on where you are? Well, the building code dictates the ceiling height, right, for a legal secondary unit. Now, each city has kind of their own interpretation and their their own allowances for ceiling height. You know, for instance, the building code states, you know, 611. While, you know, the city of Hamilton is accepting 69 for 75% of ceiling height, and they'll go as low as 65 for underneath a duct or a beam. I know in Brinkford, you know, they wanted to see 611. Um, Clear height, and they and they'll accept six five underneath uh, a duct or a beam. And there's you know there's nuances in there, and there's ways around you know around that. And different inspectors will be more lenient than others. But like usually when we're going in and measuring a basement, you know we're looking for that you know six nine to six eleven kind of range if we can. You know if it's shorter than that, then it's not really kind of worth worth it. Thanks, Ken, for sharing that. Some really, really great insight. So I want to talk a little bit about your deals and your involvements. And I'm just curious. So you've got a lot of different properties. You said 22 properties, 46 units. Can you talk to us about what's been the most successful transaction to date? Yeah, so I'll tell you a recent one that we we did, and I think the numbers are pretty good. I would say it's probably one of the most successful, but also probably the most stressful too. And it may possibly be my worst deal, but you know, we'll see. So basically in 2016, we were going through one of our other properties and, um, you know, we were going through the process of evicting the tenants, getting them out. The property needed some renovations and uh, we're looking at converting it into a student rental. It was uh, right downtown Brantford, close to the university there. In the process of, you know, getting organized for the renovation, uh, we're looking at the yard. The yard needed a lot of big trees cut down. And one of the trees was actually sharing the fence with uh, the neighbor. So, you know, obviously I go knock on the door, talk to the, the, the tenant who was there to try and find out who the owner was so we could talk about this. So eventually I got in contact with the owner. Turns out he was out of the country for a year on business. This tenant who was living there was squatting on property. Um, and wasn't paying uh, rent. So obviously he asked me if I could kind of step in and try and help him get this tenant out. So we kind of entered into a bit of a property management agreement and, uh, you know, help him get the tenant out. But then ultimately, you know, we talked about purchasing the property off of him. So long story short, I ended up buying the property off of him for $95,000. So this was in 2016. Yeah, buying a single family home for $95,000 in 2016 is like, you know, crazy, right? So, and this house was like worth every 95000 It was worth $95,000. Like, you know, it needed a ton of work. It was pretty beat up. You know, we walked into the property. There was like cat urine and poop and, you know, damaged walls. And just, you know, it was pretty beat up. So obviously, uh, you know, we got the tenant out and then we, you know, we did some renovations to the property. I put about $44,000 into it to get it kind of cleaned up and turned around. We put a new kitchen in, uh, new painting, new trim, some doors, some electrical plumbing upgrades, and then got it re-rented for $1,400 a month. So, so that worked out to about like $500 a month cash flow on it. But like, that's not the best part. Like the cash flow was okay. Like to me, $500, okay, it is what it is. The better part is that, you know, four months later, we got it reappraised for $183,000. Yeah, pretty exciting. Uh, we pulled out 70 k on a line 
which was fantastic. So that covered my renovations and my down payment into the uh, property. But then the better part still is that now I'm selling it and we have it listed for 270. And even if, you know, we don't sell it 270, we sell it, let's say 250. And this has only been two years since I've owned the property. So, you know, between the mortgage pay down, about $20,000, the cash flow of about 20 grand, you know, my line of credit, I pulled out a 70 grand. And then the proceeds of the sale, if I sell it for 270 or 250 or whatever, it works out about $8,000, like $8,300 a month for owning this property, right? And it is definitely by far my worst property because it's an older house. You know, it's not in a great part of town. And, you know, we like to uh, buy more solid properties and whatnot. Like you can't get that work in a salary job for your average person. And that worked out fantastic. But you know what? It still could be my worst deal because, you know, I still haven't sold it. So maybe I won't sell it, but chances are we will be able to sell it over the next uh, two months and, you know, take that money and put it into uh, better properties. Yeah, that sounds great. So you've got these properties and you're doing well with them. How are you financing them all? So up till now, we've kind of done everything in-house, like our own in-house financing. And I say that, I mean, you know, we're paying the down payment and we're funding the renovations and we're using conventional financing for the mortgages um, and they're usually putting 20% down on these properties. But, you know, like a lot of investors, you know, we eventually hit this wall of running out of capital. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where we're at too in our, in our portfolio is kind of, you know, we've leveraged uh, as much as we can in refinancing what we can, but, you know, eventually we kind of run out. So what we're kind of focusing on over the next, uh, basically this coming year is we're going through our entire portfolio. We're liquidating the underperforming properties. So, you know, we sold a condo, we're selling another property and we've got one more coming up that we're going to sell. Basically, then we're going to take that, those funds and um, you know, put it into more secondary suite properties um, and actually put and pull money together for a larger multi-unit. You know, I'm thinking over the next 12 to 18 months, you know, we're going to be seeing a big shift happening in the, um, the property market. You know, we're already starting to see it. You know, CIBC came out with this report, 47% of the mortgages in Canada are coming up for renewal this year. So a lot of people are going to be surprised that you know, how much their mortgage is going to cost them. And I, I just recently, they increased the, uh, the mortgage qualifying rate again. And we're forecasting that probably over the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to see a big shift in property foreclosure coming up. So we're kind of, you know, as our family, what we're doing is we're positioning ourselves uh, in a place where, you know, we can be ready to start buying some of these properties that are going to be coming up on the market, you know. So that's kind of what we're focusing on right now. Actually, when we started the, uh, the self-storage business, uh, Back in 2007, a lot of the, the business at the beginning was doing sell, uh, foreclosures for people. So back in 2007, 2008, there was a lot of foreclosures happening at that time. Well, the last you know five to eight years, that business has kind of dried up because you know the economy and real estate has been booming. But now we're kind of entering a new stage here in the real estate cycle, and we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Actually, I was talking to my brother, you know, at the moving box there, and they're starting to do like one or two foreclosures a month now. So we're kind of seeing it at the very beginning here that increase in foreclosures is, is happening. It's coming with all the changes happening with mortgages. We're going to be seeing more and more. With that knowledge, that's kind of how we're positioning ourselves over the next 12 to 18 months. We're basically trying to pull money together, pull equity out of the properties that we can while there's still equity available. Mm-hmm. Uh, banks are still giving credit and just basically sitting on that money. You know, we're still purchasing properties as good opportunities come up. Like we're still always looking, we're always purchasing. But we're basically getting ourselves ready, you know, for a big push over the next, you know, number of years as well. Yeah, I do want to add. So the best time to get access to money is really when you don't need it. And you're doing similar what to what I'm doing is, you know, all the properties that I have some equity on, I'm refinancing and getting a home equity loan credit. Now it's money that's available should I need it. I'm not refinancing and cashing out. I'm still keeping, you know, the cash flow, but having that money available on a line of credit to be able to purchase as the deals come out is going to make or break. I think that's how a lot of millionaires are were created in the US. That's how a lot of people became really wealthy is to get ready to purchase and put your funds together before you need them so that when people are going into foreclosures, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the US, but when there are some you know, opportunities and if there is a market shift that you're ready and that you're also not 
overextending yourself as well, because that's also very important, right? You don't want to refinance everything and then increase your mortgage and all of a sudden you're not cash flowing. So I think it's really smart that what you guys are doing, that you're getting your equity positioned properly, but you're not over leveraged. Yeah, absolutely. Like this goes back to uh, investing in cash flow properties, high cash flow properties. You know, we have a mixed portfolio of, of stuff. You know, we're definitely seeing that our secondary suite properties are, you know, returning the highest cash flow and the highest return on investment. So even with uh, the changes happening in the mortgage marketplace, you know, okay, so our cash flow goes down a bit, but we still have lots sitting there that's making money for us. And that you know, gives us a good cushion, you know, going into the future. So yeah, absolutely. So I have a couple of questions because you mentioned multifamily properties. And I know a few of us have been looking for a while, myself included. How did you find your multifamily properties? And how do you recommend that somebody go about to find one if they're looking for one currently? I guess you should you know, define multi-unit. Uh, like to me, when I think of multi-unit buildings, I'm thinking like 12 plus units, you know, 12 okay. to 20 units, 20 to 30 but a lot of people obviously consider uh, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, multi-unit as well. I consider those more just residential properties. So I guess it depends on what size of multi-unit well, let, you're let's looking at. Let's say commercial multifamily, so you know, five plus units. Okay. No, I'm on a, uh, a list from different real estate uh, agents who send multi-units my way. And so like usually once a week or so, I'm going through and I'm kind of analyzing these multi-units and you no, know, just to kind of keep my pulse on the marketplace for these, uh, these units. You know, they don't come up as often. Like you do. Um, the larger ones especially don't. Like, you know, anything 12 plus, 12 to 20 units, you know, you're not seeing as many of them. And the ones that are coming up on the market that I see, they're just not like the numbers just aren't great on them. The cap rates are low. The cash flow at the end of the day is, is not great. And I know guys invest, guys and girls invest in, in multi-units. Like you're not investing for cash flow per se, right? You're investing for mortgage pay down uh, in appreciation, capital appreciation on, on these buildings. So for, I would say, you no, know, for a beginner, a beginner investor, like the larger commercial multi-unit space, it's a difficult space to be in. Like, especially if you're investing for cash flow, like don't be going out and buying a larger multi-unit because the cash flow is not going to be there. I've analyzed, you know, 20 unit buildings, 40 unit buildings, and you're lucky if there's five grand cash flow. Well, you know, okay, that's 400 bucks a month, but you know, you got to put half a million dollars out to get that. Right. So it doesn't make sense for the average investor, especially a beginner to jump right into the larger multi-unit space especially if your goal is to try and cash flow. This is where focusing on smaller multi-unit, like you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, they're easier to find and get into. You know, they're in a good cash flow uh, base. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, you know, we're always looking for larger multi-units as well. But I see it on a dollar for dollar basis for as far as a return on investment. Right now, I'm seeing it in the legal secondary suites. And I know a lot of other investors, I think, would agree with that. The ones who are actually doing legal secondary suites, I think they're seeing the returns are there. Like single family home investing for cash flow, like those days are gone. You know, you can buy houses in smaller communities outside of the GTA and, you know, you can still buy them for like 200 grand. But for the average person in your local marketplace, you know, they're not buying houses for 200 grand. They're, they're buying them for 300, 400 grand. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to cash flow at that, right? So this is where we're seeing it by, you know, intensifying, basically getting more roof or more unit under one roof. So basically duplexing these. Duplex, you know, taking a single, making a duplex, taking a duplex, making it into a triplex, you know, and so on and so forth. We're taking a complex, making it into a 12plex. You know, it's the same strategy. Yeah, no, that's very in insightful. Thank you. So you guys are doing this full-time, correct? Yeah, I'm doing it full-time now, yes. So how are you guys managing all these properties? So right now, you know, we self-manage everything. Uh, so basically, me and my brother are managing uh, the portfolio. And yeah, it's basically like now that I'm doing it more full-time, I'm slowly taking more and more of uh, the management over. But it definitely takes a team of people to do this. You know, it's a lot for, for one person to do on their own. And as the portfolio continues to grow, you know, we need more and more people kind of on the team to uh, to make it happen. So, like, we also have a, a full-time handyman uh, carpenter guy who basically just kind of works for our family and does help us on renovations and, and uh, maintenance and, and, uh, and things like that. I'm not sure exactly where we found him. 
I'm not sure where we found him, but we've been working with him for like 10 years. Probably just we had a renovation coming up and we called around different guys and seeing he was available. And, and I think we just developed a good relationship with him and just kept working with him. Yeah, that's uh, probably one of the fears that I hear a lot. People asking me, oh, you know, I don't know if, if I want to self-manage. I'm going to get these calls in the middle of the night to go and fix a leaking toilet. And so you've got, you know, 46 units. And does that happen? And if so, how often? And what are some of the things that you can expect managing so many properties? For sure. It's not, uh, it's not for everybody. It does kind of take a toll on you after a while. But this is where we share the workload. So so some properties, the tenants have my number, some properties they have my brother's number so that you know we're not each getting bombarded with like all these phone calls. Not that we have a lot, but once you have a number of properties, you know, it's not uncommon to weekly to be having different things you have to uh to address. And we're pretty active. So we're also doing renovations and uh, filling units and stuff like that and acquiring new properties. So, you know, it starts, it does kind of become a full-time job, you know, after a while. And this is where kind of you need that transition or you need kind of something into it full-time. But yeah, you have to surround yourself with a team of people to do this. It's not a one-person operation. It just takes a, a team, you know, to kind of tackle all of this stuff. And that's kind of what we've kind of developed over the years. Yeah, absolutely. The team can make or break your experience, I think, as a landlord. And if you've got a great team, you can have, you know, full-time job and still be able to do this. I mean, maybe not 46 units, but I mean, in my opinion, you can have a full-time job and still manage, you know, nine, 10 units or nine properties if they're, you know, singles or, or fairly easy ones. And if you have a bad team in place, then you may only get to three or four before you really realize that this is a, a lot more than you can handle. So definitely a good handyman, a good plumber, a good electrician, you know, a good HVAC person, because you never know in the middle of the night when it's like minus 30 in the coldest night in the winter, that's when your system's going to go away and break down. <laughs> so yeah, a good team. You know, I would, I would like to just add in there too, that your level of management also like goes back to the types of properties you have and the types of tenants that you have. Yeah. So sometimes some of us like to find the cheapest property out there, but you know, oftentimes those properties are also in the worst neighborhood and attract the worst tenants, you know? Mm -hmm. So one, those properties, if they're not fully renovated, they're going to require a lot more maintenance, keep them going. And you're going to be having a lot more tenant issues, right? So your whole level of management just like jumps tenfold, right? Compared to if you're buying a, a home in a good family-friendly neighborhood, you know, it's not the cheapest one on the street, but, you know, it's a good solid house. When you buy it, you renovate it right away, fix all the issues. And then that way you can attract a really good tenant. You can get top rent for your unit, get the best tenants you can. And then your level of management is really like minimal after that, other than just a little bit of ongoing regular maintenance, you know. Um, but you're not really facing those big repairs and, and those big tenant issues and going to landlord tenant board and all that kind of stuff, you know? So it helps you find good property to invest into because it just makes your, your life that much easier. Absolutely. So I 100% agree. I also think that Guys, it's just so important that not only do you buy in a decent area, but that you do a thorough tenant screening because, and especially in Ontario, if you just give the keys to the first person that's willing to give you first and last in cash and you don't do any background checks, it's going to take you a while in comparison to maybe investing in Texas or something to go through the landlord and tenant board. And so I think a crucial thing, yes, for sure, buying a great you know, or a decent area. Don't buy in the, you know, war zones or in Canada, the areas that are more crime ridden, because I don't think we have war zones like they do in the US. But, you know, make sure that you do a thorough job of screening your tenants so that you've got, you know, a lot less headaches and issues on your hands. So are you using a tenant screening company for all your stuff? No, I actually do my own, but I will pre-screen them on the phone. And then when I schedule showings, I'm screening them again. And then I will do, so I have this whole application and I added like two pages of additional questions, which if you guys are listening and you want them, just let me know, send me an email and I will send them to you. But I basically have a whole list of additional questions and then I will do a credit check. I will call current past and past past landlords if they have that. I'll do a social media check. And you know what I also really like to do is I like to send the names over to my paralegal who is local and 
I ask her, do you know who these people are? Are they somebody that you've ever encountered in court? And the answer should be no. So they go through all of these things and then they definitely do have to meet the requirements. And then I look at income as well. Like I would want them to, I don't care where the income is coming from. Like if it's disability or employment, I just need to make sure that it's three times or more the rent. So there's like different things like that, that I will look for, for sure. And then if there's little red flags, I mean, here's the nice thing about we're investing their tenants are a dime a dozen. So, you know, you can definitely be more picky. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I use Neighborly, uh, which is uh, just like an online tenant screening uh, platform. I find it fantastic. You know what? So I put the tenant's name and their email address into it and it gets sent off to the tenant. And then the tenant has to like upload uh, scanned copies of their pay stubs. You have to like verify all their sources of income, like whether it's pay stubs or, or bank statements. You have to upload a copy of their driver's license or their passport, you know, to verify their ID. Yes. There's like a million questions that they ask. I actually was going through a tenant screening with a gentleman and he was older and you know he wasn't very tech savvy. So we actually had him come into the office and we did the application with him. So he brought his documents and I just like scanned them in and, and like I was going through the application myself. I'm like, this is crazy. Like all the stuff that they ask. I'm like, this is really awesome for us landlords because like they even ask you if you have a pet to upload a picture of your pet. Nice. You know, and if you if you don't, you can't submit the application. So it's like they like kind of force you to like provide all this documentation, which, you know, which is awesome. And then you get the whole report back, gives you a copy of their credit report. And then, you know, you do all your proper follow up from there, you know, call their employers and call their previous landlords and all the kind of stuff like you should be doing. How much does it really cost? It's free. Really? Like it was like a year ago, you had to pay for it. So we always kind of paid for for the the screening, but now it's free. So how do they stay in business? Um, good question. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not sure uh, what their system is there, how they make money, but I'm sure they do. Interesting. So neighborly, just if you guys are looking it up, it's N-A-B-O-R-L-Y? Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. It's not like an N-E-I-H-G-H or whatever it is. So N-A-B-O-R-L-Y.com? Neighborly.com. Like, uh, you know, it's nice too. I have an issue with an application. And I just uh, called them up and uh, a lady picked up the phone right away and answered my question and it was perfect. Awesome. Good. We'll have to check them out. I've heard a lot of great things and I have yet to use their services, but I think I may try it next time. So our next part of our podcast is called the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and you can give me the first answer that comes to mind. You ready? Okay, let's do it. Awesome. Okay. So question number one of the lightning round, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Oh man. So to be completely honest, I don't read books really, you know, all through university and college, I've always struggled with like sitting down, sitting still and reading a book. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and you no, know, I read articles on my phone, different real estate related articles and, and stuff like that. But no, I know a lot of people say, oh, I've read Rich Dad and Poor Dad and The Millionaire Next Door. And, and you know what? I've never read those books. But I kind of recognize that I'm kind of coming from a bit of a different background, too, where you know, my dad was doing this since he was in his 20s. So I've kind of always had those uh, lessons kind of about real estate from my dad. So I realize I'm kind of blessed to be able to be in a position with someone like that in my family. Um, not everybody. Uh, has that and for sure like I would recommend to people you know if if you don't have a lot of uh, knowledge in real estate for sure you got to start reading books but I would say just start listening to podcasts like yours there's lots of other good real estate podcasts out there you can learn so much from just listening you know absolutely so that actually is question number two (laughs) what is your favorite podcast so my favorite podcast, I would say I really enjoyed uh, Breakthrough Real Estate Investing with Rob Break and Sandy McKay. They were probably the first real estate podcast I really got into and started listening to a lot. Kind of at the same time, I was listening to Bigger Pockets. And more recently, I started listening to The Everyday Millionaire with Patrick Brancy. That's more kind of more uh, motivational type of uh, uh, listening. And, you know, lately, Tom and Nick uh, Karadza came out with their podcast. I've been listening to that because I'm a Rockstar VIP member. And then, of course, yours, Where Should I Invest with Sarah Larby. To be honest, I'm newer to your podcast because I just kind of found out about it through joining the uh, the So Right Club. 
um, that you guys started. But uh, I've listened to a number of uh, your podcasts and they're awesome. They're fantastic. And I love listening. Okay, great. Thank you. So Ken, what do you do for fun aside from real estate? So what do I do for fun outside of real estate? So my wife and I actually, we bought a 10 acre farm last year and we're raising alpacas. Wow. Okay. So I need to know more about this. Okay. So for people who don't know what an alpaca is, an alpaca is kind of like a llama. If you don't know what a llama is, it's part of the camel family. But basically, it's a smaller version of a llama. And you know, people raise them for their wool. They're and so, so like, sorry? You said they're so cute. Yeah, you know what? They're really cute. So we have a number of them. You know, we raise them for their wool because you can make really cool alpaca sweaters and socks and hats and different things out of them. And uh, actually, uh, for Mother's Day, I actually surprised my wife, Caitlin, and uh, I went out and got her pregnant alpacas. So I'm actually uh, looking at them right now as we talk here, and uh, they're just grazing out in the field. And, uh, you know, it's just very peaceful and relaxing. You know, it, you know, when you're out kind of busy doing real estate and you're out, you know, in the hustle and bustle of the city, I just find it really relaxing to come home tonight. It's kind of quiet country property, look out at the animals in the field. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what we do, you know, really every day. It's a morning and evening tour, for sure, going in and feeding the animals, letting them out in the morning. Uh, and then when I come home, I bring them all back in. And uh, we don't just have alpacas, we have some horses and pigs and goats and sheep and a number of peacocks and different stuff like that. So yeah, it really keeps us on our toes, for sure. And uh, especially when the babies are coming. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, other than that, you know, we spend a lot of time on the water. Uh, we have a boat in Hamilton, and so I enjoy going down there in the evenings when we can, or on the weekend, and just spending time out on the boat. Wow, that's really probably the first time, and maybe the last time that somebody's pastime is raising alpaca. It is like the coolest thing. I, I've got to go see them. At some point, when I'm in town, I'm going like, to call you. <laughs> Yeah, if you go to uh, my Facebook page, you'll see I just posted some pictures of them. Okay, what's your Facebook page? Just my name, Ken Beacondam. Okay, awesome. I'm like uh, the only one out there named Ken Beacondam. So if you just Google me, you'll find me. Cool. Okay, I'll do that. So number four, if you lost all your money and assets tomorrow, Ken, how would you start again? So basically, if I lost everything tomorrow, I would, uh, you know, beg and borrow for a down payment from somebody. I'd put the renovations on my credit card and I put in a secondary suite in my basement and rent it out and kind of start over right at the very beginning, kind of where I started. And um, that's kind of what I would do. I believe in real estate so much, so life-changing that, you know, even if you have a big setback and you lose everything, it's still such a strong strategy that, you know what, you, uh, you pick up your pants and start again. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? I think the best way for somebody to spend $50,000 is just to go out and buy something and get started. People can spend a lot of money on education. And don't get me wrong, like education is very important. Like you have to know what you're doing. But I don't believe that you have to pay a lot of money to learn real estate. You know, there's so much information out there regarding podcasts and online, just different websites, you know, talk to people who are doing real estate, like people like yourself, myself, you know, come out to these uh, networking groups. You can learn so much for free and put that $50,000 into a, the purchase of your first rental property. And, you know, it may not be a $400,000 house because you're going to need more than 50 grand, but, you know, maybe it's a house that's 200000 or a condo, you know, and the only way you're going to learn is by doing. And I believe in that 100%. You know, you learn along the way and just make sure you, you surround yourself with other people who've done it before. But, you know, I see people go out and spend, you know, $30,000 on real estate coaching. And I don't know, I just think that's crazy to me. You know, I've heard so many stories from different investors. Like, I'm actually working with two investors right now who they spend a lot of money on coaching. They invested with these firms down in the U.S. and they're just like not making any money. And now they're in lawsuits with these people. And I'm like, guys, why don't you just invest close to home? Like invest in a property that you can drive by. Mm -hmm. Like invest with people that you can talk to face to face. That makes more sense to me than spending 50 grand on crazy coaching. Like, you know, these companies, they're all 
Like, you, know, you see their ads on the radio, you see their ads in the newspaper charging these crazy fees, you know, thousands of people flock to their weekend boot camps. And I don't know, you know what, I just, that doesn't make sense to me. Put your money into a deal like right away and learn from that. Okay, great advice. Thank you. So thanks for playing the lightning round. So Ken, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out to you? I would say uh, basically just Google my name, Ken Beacondam. Probably connect with me on Facebook first. And then from there, you know, I can share you my phone number and, uh, and stuff like that. And then we can get connected that way. But uh, basically what I do is, you know, I help the investors find and uh, do legal secondary suites and uh, basically in Brantford and Hamilton. And I do like project management and stuff as well. So for investors who kind of need some help, kind of get stuck and they kind of need a uh, path forward, you know, I, I help guys with their projects, you know, like this past week, you know, I'm consulting with uh, a guy who's got some student rentals by McMaster and just, you know, need some advice about how to um, reposition the properties, you know, renovate them properly, legally, and to get the top rent for the other room. I'm helping another investor in Branford on a legal secondary suite project. So I helped him find the property. I'm doing all the permit drawings for him for, uh, for the legal second suite because I do my own permit drawings. And, uh, and then I'm helping uh, basically project manage it, bringing the contractors, get the quotes. And you know, basically I'm working for the investor. So I'm not a contractor myself. I help the investor basically in a project management relationship, more or less, to get their, their investments done. Very cool. Any last words of advice or anything else that you'd like the listeners know about? Like I said earlier, I think every investor needs to be going back through their uh, current portfolio and look at ways to intensify and create more density within their, their units. Like we have a mixed portfolio and we're seeing it in our legal secondary suites that that's like the highest cash flow right now even on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis compared to a multi-unit, like a larger multi-unit, like the numbers just don't compare. Like, do we have time? Can I give you a quick example? Sure. So, for instance, we purchased a, uh, a bungalow in Brantford for 280000 So this was in December of this year. We're putting $80,000 into a legal secondary suite with permits. So it's a two-bedroom basement unit. We have a three-bedroom main floor unit, and uh, we just have it rented out now. The main floor, we're getting 1500 plus hydro. The basement, we're getting 1450 plus hydro. So that's gross rent of $2,950. Wow. Our carrying costs on the property, so mortgage, property taxes, and insurance is $1,350. Like this property, we split all the utilities. So we have separate hydro, separate water. We put two furnaces in the property. So the tenants pay everything. So that works out to like cash flow on a yearly basis of $19,000. That works out to $1,598 cash flow. So that's what you have to work with. From there, you have room to pay a property manager. You have room to pay somebody to cut the grass and shovel the snow. So even if you take that off, you know, you're still cash flowing like 1200 bucks a month. Like the numbers are fantastic on these types of projects. And we're seeing the numbers work quite well up into the $400,000 range. You know, once you get into 450, the numbers aren't as great, but there's lots of these bungalows to be bought in the 300 to $350,000 range, especially in Brantford. Hamilton, you're paying about 450 for these properties. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over this year and next year on this property, we're projecting about, without accounting for refinance cash, so just like cash flow and mortgage pay down, to be about a 25% return on the initial purchase, renovations, and one year of operation. If we take into account the refinance cash, it works out to like a 90% return on investment, which is like crazy, right? You can't get that in the stock market, you, you know, can't. years over years. That's for sure. You might get lucky one year with some stock or something, but it's not consistent. So those are some really impressive numbers. Yeah. So, and then just a straight cash on cash return. Like some guys, you know, like to um, analyze their properties differently. So like cash on cash, the 13% cash on cash returns, cash in, cash out, which is great. Like that beats a lot of different stuff. But we don't invest for that. We invest for the cash flow. So we're investing for that 15.98 a month because that gives us lots of room to do lots of other stuff. And we're just not seeing those numbers in the multi-unit world, you know, I just don't. So that's kind of where we're focusing a lot of our energy at right now. 
Yeah, very, very impressive numbers. So thank you very much. And on that note, Ken, thank you for being on Where Should I Invest and sharing your knowledge with the listeners. Really appreciate it. No problem, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.